Hi, I'm Tori Peacock. I'm the mother slash owner of a gorgeous New Yorkie puppy named Byron. And you're listening to another episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Yay for puppies! Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. Taking care of our loved ones requires us to give a part of ourselves and our hearts. When in a caregiver role over time, it's common for people to lose themselves in their role and not always tend to their own needs. This may result in a condition known as compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue, it will creep up on you. Let me explain. My golden retriever, Charity, eventually found herself in a world of deep need when it came to medical care as many things were collapsing toward the end of her life. I tended to her every need. We had a wonderful ride, but then when Charity was gone, what reaching the end of that journey allowed me to realize was that I had succumbed to what is known as compassion fatigue. I didn't recognize it right away, but recent training helped the cobwebs and feelings fade enough to get a grip on the first rung of a ladder that enabled me to begin pulling myself into a far more beneficial arena of self-care. Eventually, I came across a book called Compassion Satisfaction, 50 Steps to Healthy Caregiving. So I called the author. I learned how I could present this and in my sample that would eventually help people identify and begin the course correction when it comes to compassion fatigue. And now I would like to introduce you to that author, Patricia Smith, who joins us remotely from San Juan Islands in Washington State. Welcome, Patricia. It's good to connect with you again. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the wonderful introduction. Well, I am really excited to do this podcast with you because you really, I don't know if you even realize this, but at the same time I was dealing with my own issues of compassion fatigue after the loss of my dog, I was also in the train the trainer for compassion fatigue presentations at work in the healthcare field. And so then I was also asked to do presentations on compassion fatigue while trying to like navigate it through my own stuff. And so your email and conversation back then was really, really important. So I just wanted to share that with you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so Patricia, the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right? Right, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Patricia, you've worked in the field of compassion fatigue for many years. What made you become interested in this topic? Well, oddly enough, it was I was working in animal welfare at the time. Uh, my background is not, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor or a therapist, and I never diagnose anyone. I never try to tell anyone what to do. I just try to share the tried and true what I know has worked and what I've learned in 20 years of working. My background is actually journalism. That's where I've written, you know, a number of books and articles on this subject. Mm-hmm. And what happened was my, I was a single mom with three kids, and my uh, last one went off, my daughter Elizabeth went off to college 
And I thought I'd been in textbook publishing, and I was a correspondent for the Santa Fe Murphy News for 20 years. And I thought I, I wanted to do something a little bit different, something that filled my, my soul. Uh, I, I love writing, and I love books, and I love all of that, but I wanted to do something different, and I've always loved animals. And so I thought, I want to get into animal welfare work. I had no idea at that time the underbelly of animal welfare work. So I went up, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, and I went to UC Santa Cruz for a year-long training course in training and development. And right after that, I found on Craigslist, because this was in the late 1990s, I found a job, uh, training and development manager for Humane Society Silicon Valley in Santa Clara. And I applied for the job, and I got it. And I was only on the job for two weeks, and the ED came to me, and she said, I'd like you to do a shelter-wide training on compassion fatigue, and I had never heard that expression before. And I said, okay, I'd be happy to do that. There were about 125 of us. Uh, It's a very large shelter, Mm -hmm. county shelter, and I said I'd be happy to do that. So I thought, I didn't know what she was talking about. So I went upstairs to my office, and I um, Googled compassion fatigue. And at that time, the only thing that came up was the academic work of Dr. Charles Figley, who is Mm -hmm. literally the world's leading traumatologist. Mm -hmm. And he was at that time at Florida State University. And not realizing who this man was or is, I emailed him and said, uh, I would like very much to talk to you about, you know, compassion fatigue. I'm working in animal welfare, and I've never understood what this is. I just heard the expression for the first time, and I said, is there any chance you can help me out? And he got right back to me, and he said, I've worked with just about every helping profession in the world, except I have not worked with animal welfare people, and we know they have very high levels of compassion fatigue. So that started me on the the road to this thing, and I started reading more about it and learning more about it. He sent me all of his books, and I read them, and I did a a very successful training for the shelter, and uh, I realized during all this time and taking some tough tests that I, indeed, had very, very high levels of compassion fatigue, and I probably suffered from the symptoms all of my life. The rest is just history. It just kept growing and growing. And a few years after that, I started the Compassion Fatigue Awareness Project just as a means to educate caregivers because uh, I soon learned it wasn't just animal welfare people and healthcare professionals. It was anyone who does caregiving work is at risk for compassion fatigue, including family caregivers. So it's really anything that requires you giving of yourself, giving of your heart to take care of another person or animal or living being that makes you susceptible to compassion fatigue. Right. That's exactly right. Would you mind explaining what is compassion fatigue? Well, I'm actually going to read something to you because I want to get it exactly right. Uh, I've been working on this this expression of compassion fatigue and what it is because there's a lot of confusion around, you know, what it is. There's a lot of things out there. There's post-traumatic stress. There's all kinds of things that that the professionals use, and they're trying to divide things up. So I've been working with Dr. Beth Heldenault-Stam, who is the creator of the self-test that everyone uses as a measurable, and this is what we've come up with. Compassion fatigue is a broadly defined concept that includes physical, emotional, and spiritual depletion associated with the suffering-related work we do where people or animals are in significant emotional pain or physical distress. So does that make sense? It sure does make sense. As a a caregiver, you're witnessing this pain and suffering. And if we don't have healthy boundaries, we take on the pain and suffering of others and we connect it to our own. 
And what we have to learn to do is have detached compassion. We're not called to take on the suffering of others. We're only called to help them to witness it, to be present for their pain and suffering. So compassion fatigue happens with people who do not have those boundaries. There are a lot of people who work in in helping professions who help people for 20, 30 years, nurses, doctors, uh, social workers, people in the ministries, and they never suffer suffer the uh, symptoms of compassion fatigue because they have very healthy boundaries and they know that what's happening to that other person is not happening to them. They are only there to care for them and be present for them in their suffering. So they don't personalize it. They don't personalize it. That's a good way of saying it. I actually, when I worked for a large healthcare organization, I worked very closely with an emergency room physician. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to him one day, and he's been in the field for many, many years. And I said, You always look happy, you look at peace, and you work in the inner city in the emergency department. How do you do that? And he said, I do my job because I love my work. And then I go home, I get on the treadmill, and I jog staring at a white wall, and I just let it all go. I just jog it out, and then I go back to work again. I thought, that is wonderful. Very hard to do. Yeah, and the letting, the letting go is a huge part of it. It's, it's one of the um, strategies for dealing with compassion fatigue. Patricia, I actually miss my convertible because at the end of a long work day, I used to put the convertible top down, zoom down the highway, play great music, and then I would transition home, wash my hands with lavender-smelling soap, and then I'd change my clothes, and that was a way that I would transition back home. And that was really good for my own mental health. Yes, that's exactly it. That's the secret of the whole thing. It's very simple, but it's also very, very difficult. We really have to train ourselves to be able to do that because our brains just want to keep going back to Mm -hmm. that trauma. Mm -hmm. Our brains do not want to let go of trauma, and we have to learn to overcome that and find those things. At the end of presentations, I always tell, you know, my audiences, find what you love, what you're passionate about, what revitalizes you, and do more of it. That's really good advice. Is there a difference between compassion fatigue and burnout? Uh, Definitely. One of the things I get asked a lot is, what's the difference between stress and burnout and post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. and secondary stress, which is compassion fatigue? Burnout is a state of emotional, physical, mental exhaustion, and it's caused by excessive or prolonged stress. Compassion fatigue is actually a secondary traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. You're being traumatized by the work you're doing, and Mm -hmm. the trauma is creating these issues and symptoms in your life. Yeah, that, that makes sense. If you put me in a position that, say, required math all day or spreadsheets all day, I would probably burn out pretty quickly because yeah. that's not my passion. <laughs> the difference for me would be if I worked in the helping profession, which I love to do and what I do for a living, and I get I felt burnt out and then I moved to another helping profession, that would not I would not feel better. Right, because I haven't taken care of my basic needs. Exactly. Okay. Right, and and burnout doesn't, as I said, doesn't have necessarily anything to do with trauma. An accountant can can suffer burnout. A gardener, someone who works, you know, in landscaping, can burn out. The issue, unfortunately, with compassion fatigue is oftentimes people are in helping professions. They are also highly stressed, and they are burned out. And, and I see this a lot in animal welfare people, unfortunately. Animal 
care is very intense. It's very personal. It's very difficult work. And, uh, and we can talk about this in a minute, but it calls into place all kinds of different things that cause that stress. There are all kinds of stresses in, in that kind of environment. High levels of responsibility for those animals. No room for mistakes. Usually veterinarians, particularly, and staff members don't seek help, even though they know they've got high levels. Uh, you work long hours. Public relations is huge. You know, you can a shelter can do everything right for, for a year, and they do one thing wrong, and it's all over the news, mm-hmm. and everybody is jumping on them. And, of course, that job burnout. It never gets better. And that's what I saw when I was the training and development manager at the shelter. Mm-hmm. The young people would come to me that I trained, and they were so full of energy and joy and excitement about finally doing something to help the animals. And a couple of months later, they'd come in and go, it never gets any better. Mm-hmm. They keep bringing the animals in. They keep bringing the spring litters of kittens in. You know, they keep bringing in, you know, animals that have been abused. It never gets better. And I try to tell them it does get better, and that's because of the work you're doing. You know, you're doing good work for the animals, and you have to remember that. And sometimes it's just one time, but you've made a difference in the life mm-hmm. of that animal. Patricia, when I've talked to veterinarians and, and vet veterinary nurses, I'm often told that, you know, they their passion is taking care of the animals. Then when they get into the field, they're hit with so many other complications, including angry owners of pets. There are a lot of other issues that, you know, people not being able to afford for, you know, animal care or not wanting to, to pay a huge amount to take care of their animals. They're, I mean, there's just a long list of, of very complicated issues that people in the veterinary profession have to deal with. And somebody in one of the veterinary clinics, uh, it was actually the office manager, I believe, told me one time that she tells the staff, take care of what you can control in that moment, which is the animal Take the best care that you can for that animal when they come in the door because you can't control the rest. You can't control right. what happens later. I thought that was great advice. It is excellent advice. And, and veterinarians, I just wrote a book on this subject. It was published by an international publisher called Grupo Assis, which publishes veterinary medicine materials. It's called Stress, Compassion, Fatigue, and Burnout Handling in Veterinary Practice. Mm. And they're located in Spain. And I received an email a year ago asking if I would co-author this book with Immaculata Madrigal, who is a veterinary surgeon. We did the whole book over the Internet and going back and forth. And they only spoke Spanish and I only speak English. (sighs) And we were able to produce the most lovely book. They did the most spectacular job. Uh, And that's exactly what we talk about, all of these issues that people in veterinary practice are dealing with. And they have the the third uh, highest suicide rate, uh, certainly in our country. And in working with INMA, uh, I found out it's everywhere in the world. I mean, we went in and looked at studies and did a lot of research, and it's everywhere. That's incredibly sad. It's so horribly sad. And so many of them are leaving the profession, which is a big problem with, with any kind of caregiving, is they burn out, they have compassion fatigue, and they leave the practice, and then pretty soon we're going to be left with no one to take care of these things. So it's, it's, a, real, it's a real issue and a real problem. So I was very proud to be part of this book. It's actually in the form of a textbook, and it's being sold as a textbook. 
one of my big complaints is that they don't, and what I've heard from vet, veterinarians is they don't teach this in the veterinary school. Mm-hmm. They mention it, mm-hmm. and they say, you can get compassion fatigue, you need to take care of yourself, and that's about the extent of it. So much more involved than that. Yeah, I hope that changes uh, soon. I'm actually, I just finished the veterinary social work program out of the University of Tennessee. And after five years, I was really excited to have finished that. We spent at length, we spent um, a lot of discussion about compassion fatigue among veterinarians and veterinary professionals and what we can do to help other people stay in the field. So what was so great about the, the training the last intensive that I I went through is that they included veterinary professionals with therapists. And so we worked together on complicated cases like role plays. And part of that included um, learning how to communicate and also how to go in and support each other. We don't have to be in there alone. And to know when to access help when we need it was something that was emphasized. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Do you know that that was probably... One of the first five presentations I ever did, probably 15 years ago. Really? And I can't remember her name, the doctor there. And when she she contacted me to come to the university and speak, I had never heard of veterinary social work. And boy, what an education I got sitting through that conference. I did the keynote, but then there are a lot of other speakers. It is a huge place for some good work to be done. So it sounds like they've continue to do it. That's, that's excellent news. That put a smile on my face. So I think, was the doctor Dr. Elizabeth Strand? Yep, that's yes. who it is. So she's the head of the program, and I am so happy that I stuck with the program. Uh, there were parts of it that were very, very challenging for me because it's really hard to witness and also work through the animal abuse and neglect oh, part of the yeah. program, um, and also the euthanasia. And I know that people in the veterinary community have to deal with euthanasia at an alarming rate, and also in the animal welfare community. Definitely. Well, she's a visionary. She I really mean, is. This, like I said, I'm sure it was at least 15 years ago that I went back to Tennessee and went to the university and spoke, and it was an eye-opener for me. And I thought, boy, she, this is really something that they're doing this. I didn't realize then how amazing it was. But uh, like I said, she is a visionary. And I'm glad to hear she's still there and bringing people like you to the forefront to to do more work on this. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, It was one of the personal challenges for me, and I pushed through it. I had to do a lot of self-talk to get myself through the last part of it, but... It was a huge sense of accomplishment, and several other veterinary social workers are going to be on the podcast coming up in the the months to come. Oh, such good work. Thank you. Patricia, you were on a TED Talk called Navigating the Path to Wellness, Compassion, Fatigue, and Caregiving. Can you tell us a little bit about this presentation? Well, I was asked here on the island to speak. Uh, It was the wonderful theme of it was quality of life, and there's nothing more perfect than quality of life, because when you have compassion, high levels of compassion fatigue, your quality of life is basically non-existent. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just existing and getting through day by day. So I was a perfect match. How they got my name, I don't know, because I was new to the island. Anyway, it's an 18-minute talk, and it was an interesting experience for me. When I speak, I speak to a specific group. It'll be nurses, it'll be veterinarians, it'll be ministers, it'll be social workers, it'll be Texas hostage negotiators, it'll be law enforcement. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. A specific group. But when you just do a TED Talk, you have an audience out there, and it's all kinds of people. 
So it was really nerve-wracking for me, to be honest with you. I bet. Um, it, it came off just fine. So, Patricia, you've you've written numerous books on this subject, and you've mentioned a, a couple of them, and I mentioned one of them. We're going to make sure that we put all of the links to the um, books in the show notes. And, by the way, I am so glad you just wrote a book because that means I get to order another one. Good. My friends keep telling me, stop ordering books, but... Oh, that's never going to happen. It's never going to happen, right? some of us, it's our livelihood. That's right. Who would you say... We we talked a little bit about this before, but the people that are at risk for compassion fatigue are the ones that really care a lot about what they're doing, and they're passionate. Definitely. But um, sometimes it's... Sometimes I call caregiving an addiction. You know, they're they're addicted to caregiving. They don't have the skills, uh, the coping skills and the tools to self-regulate, and it takes over. I was a consultant at ASPCA in New York for several years and did a help them put together an organization-wide compassion fatigue program with Dr. Susan Cohen. And I, I, I would go back there, and I'd spend a few days, and I would shadow different parts of the the organization. They have different buildings throughout New York, and I was on the one mostly in 91st Street. And I would see this uh, just regularly, day in and day out, shadowing the different departments. Uh, There was no self-regulation. If if an animal, you know, a dog died in their care, it was just chaos and mayhem. It wasn't people who were grieving but but were able to self-regulate. They care a lot, but they care in a way that maybe isn't as helpful as people who do have those kind of coping skills. Mm-hmm. And that's not being critical. I understand it. My goodness, I certainly understand it, especially when it comes to animals. But that's part of what I do, or most of what I do, is try to educate caregivers in, in all the helping professions how to, to self-manage in order to make the situation better instead of worse. And when you work around animals, it's just constant. It, it never lets up. So when I've done presentations on compassion fatigue, you know, to rescue animal rescue groups, shelters, some of the common questions or conversations that we have, how do we also protect the people around us while also taking care of our own needs? And so, for instance, some people don't get their needs met because they go home and they want to just vent to family members or friends about all the horrific things that happen during the day, and they feel like other people push them away. And so we've had conversations about how can you get your needs met, which means basically what are the emotions that you're feeling without sharing the detailed stories, and then that could actually be traumatizing other people. Oh, you're exactly right. It's called sliming. Mm-hmm. And when I do shadow work in different organizations, uh, particularly healthcare, like you know ER and places where it never lets up, um, I see a lot of sliming. Something happens; it's a traumatic event, a death has occurred, or whatever, and the person who experienced it has to find somebody. It's inside. It's inside, and those feelings are just roaming around in their body, and they have to get it out, or they'll go crazy. And so, what they do is the you know, poor person that walks up to them, the first person that walks up to them gets slimed. It just comes out. And it traumatizes the person listening, and it re-traumatizes the person who experienced it. And what we have to do is learn, as I said, to self-regulate. We have to have coping skills to deal with these feelings that we don't know what to do with. One of the things is the letting go 
procedure that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. is, you know, how do you let go? How, how can you get what is inside to the outside without harming other people? Mm-hmm. And so to me, in organizations, the main thing you can do to help others is education, education, education. You know, have brown bag lunches about what compassion fatigue is and strategies on how to self-manage. It's about uh, the organization itself presenting good ways to to be a well organization, Uh, and that's through leadership. You know, oftentimes it's gotten better, I must say, particularly in the last couple of years. I'll be hired by, you know, PR or uh, HR, rather, or a director or something to come and speak, and oftentimes what happens is the the person will uh, introduce me, and then they're so busy they leave. And I feel like saying, no, no, you need to come back. You need mm-hmm. to be in the front row mm-hmm. because what leadership does is what everyone else does. If your director, your boss, your supervisor doesn't eat lunch, you don't eat lunch. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. You know, we watch each other and we learn from each other. And if your leaders have good, healthy habits, the others will follow suit. So that's the best thing you can do is have leaders who really, really understand this whole concept that everyone is watching them. Education. Find ways to educate. Oftentimes I'm asked, you know, this, someone will come up after presentation or during an intermission and say, I have this. I know I do. I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing the best I can. But there's someone in our office who is over the top with this. What can we do to help her? Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, never put someone in a corner and say, you always do this. I mean, it's effective communication. You never do that to another person. What they'll do is become very defensive. So what you want to do is be inclusive. You want to say, gee, I went to a a workshop or I heard a podcast, and there's this self-test we can take. I thought maybe we could all take it here in the department and incorporate that person into the healing process so they don't feel like they've been singled out. It's It's a process. Uh, it's about becoming self-aware, and there's so many people who are not self-aware, particularly caregivers. You know, the whole caregiving thing starts usually at a very, very early age, and now we're finding out more and more about adverse childhood experiences. Right. A lot, you know, we don't ask, you know, what's wrong mm-hmm. with you. We ask what happened to you. Exactly. And and so a lot of people who go into helping professions are experiencing childhood traumas that have never been resolved. And to attack them, and, and you know, it, it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. What we want to do is we want to bring them into the healing circle, try to help them be there to listen, but not to the point where it's impinging on your own self-care. And I, I always tell groups, you know, there's a word that a lot of us don't know because we're caregivers, and that word is no. <laughs> no, I can't do that for you right now. Maybe I can do it later. Or, uh, no, I, I really don't think I'm the right person to help you, but maybe so-and-so can help you. It, it's, you know, always offloading something that isn't going to help your own self-care. Because if we don't fill up, we have nothing left to give others. You know, the rhythm of a healthy caregiver is deplete, fill up, deplete, fill up. And if you have compassion fatigue and you're following these, these habits that are not healthy, you're going to deplete, deplete, deplete. And that's where the emotional outbursts come out and putting people in a corner and yelling at them and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that isn't going to help anyone. We have to fill up. And that's on a daily basis. What I've heard from other people, though, especially in um, animal rescue groups, is, but I can't. I can't not take that last call of the evening when somebody is going to get rid of their dog, like right now, or get rid of their cat. 
I have to do that because nobody else is around to do that. When we do the seminars, we kind of talk about how can we help you feel comfortable to then pass the baton on to somebody else who can then take that call and work on more of a buddy system so you don't feel like you're saying, no, you're setting your own boundaries and limits, but somebody's there to pick up the pieces for you. Yes, the buddy system is one of the things that I always recommend particularly in healthcare, because nurses have such a hard time. You know, they can't Mm -hmm. leave the floor. It's very, very difficult for them. They have a lot coming at them, especially now with what's going on. You know, to have a buddy to say, can you watch the desk for two minutes? I need to go and splash some cold water on my face, Mm -hmm. or I need to go down to the cafeteria and get myself a quick cup of coffee, or, you know, the buddy system is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Um, When someone says, I can't, the answer to that is, yes, you can. (laughs) I know that sounds harsh. But they can. It's a habit that they've they've built now that they are over responsible for everything. And none of us have that much responsibility in the world. We just don't. We take it on, but we don't have it. You know, there are ways to do that. There are also ways that the organization can help, particularly when I talk to veterinary offices when they tell me that they're, you know, just overworked all the time and no one ever gets a break and I said, well, what about closing your office from 12 to 1.30 so everyone has time to eat lunch and everyone has time to go and run a couple of personal errands? Or, you know, they have time to have lunch with their colleagues. Like, oh, we can't do that. Yes, you can. It's that mm. simple. And then those calls don't come in. And they go, but who will man the, the front desk? And I said, well, have an emergency service there. If there's an emergency, of course people are going to help. But if it's the, the usual thing, let it go. It'll be there when you come back at 1 or one thirty. So and it never stops, as you know. You know, it never stops. Well, uh, it'll, be, it'll be there in the morning. So one of the things I've actually witnessed is being in the animal emergency clinic like the entire day with a sick dog and watching the candle being lit as there's a euthanasia happening in each one of the rooms. And I've watched the veterinary staff And the front desk staff handle that just because I basically didn't have anything else to do except worry about my dog. So I was just kind of people watching and seeing how they handled those things. And I did say to one of the front desk staff person, people one time, you know, you handled that really well when there was also a challenging person that came in with their pet that was saying they were were not going to pay for the procedures. I thought, how is she able to handle that the entire day? Because it was hard for me to even watch. But she handled it beautifully. And so I think that we can learn from each other if we take time to have maybe the roundtable discussions or asking people how they handle these things. When you talked about detached compassion, that's kind of what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have so much of this right. You've done a lot of work, I can tell, by the things you're saying. One of the things I, you know, highly recommend is support your colleagues. If you see someone who does handle something well or is particularly gentle with an animal or anything, tell them, you know, I watched you. I really learned from you how to deal with that. You handled that so well. Tell them that. Something like that can carry them through the rest of the day and maybe into the next day to know that somebody noticed that they're doing a good job. And when you're so busy, like they are in animal welfare work, no one takes the time to do that. And it only takes a second. And the same is true of volunteers. And I do a lot of work with with volunteers. Normally, I don't put them in with staff. I do separate workshops because the the issues are different, you know. Volunteers never feel appreciated. 
Mm-hmm. And to tell a volunteer, you're doing a really good job. I really appreciate you coming in here every day or every you know other day or once a week. Just tell them that. Give them what they need, and they'll do a much better job for you. I know that those of you that are listening are probably fatigued. It's time to take a short break during the Animal Academy podcast. We'll be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the Editor Corps. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at AnimalAcademyPodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Everyone, welcome back to the Animal Academy podcast. Our focus today is on compassion fatigue, and we're talking about great things with the always information-filled Patricia Smith. Welcome back, Patricia. Thank you. Compassion fatigue, I tend to be geared toward the animal world now with compassion fatigue, but I also, I'm in private practice, and I get a number of clients that come in that don't know the, the term compassion fatigue, but I notice the symptoms because they're taking care of a loved one. And lately, I've been hearing a lot from parents and, you know, because of the COVID, and I've been hearing a lot from nurses who are in the helping profession. None of them are thanked enough. So I do want to send out a thank you to anybody in the healthcare profession who is doing a remarkable job of working endlessly, tirelessly to take care of so many people. You know, I'm just hoping that they are taking care of themselves so we can keep them in the field. Definitely. Patricia, I know you go into the work environment. Are there some specific things that you would suggest that people do in any kind of work environment to protect people against compassion fatigue? As far as like colleagues? Colleagues or for organizations that could be in any anything to be able to take care of the employees. Okay. I don't mean this to sound snarky because there's a lot of organizations now there. They're very big on wellness departments. Right. And what they're doing is they're getting, you know, cut rate gym memberships for their people. They're bringing in yoga people after work. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. you know, getting healthier snacks. They're trying to do a lot of things that are really, really good. But the core problem is that organizations need to do more and they need to do more important things. They need to find a way to make wages higher. They need to give people more benefits. 
They need to bring training on site to help people. They need workable, uh, flexible work schedules. These are the kind of things that are really going to help people. I work. I worked in healthcare for ten years, and and we did some of this. And we had, you know, yoga after we we did a, a survey, and yoga was a big thing. And and we brought someone in for after work, but you know what? No one came. They were tired at the end of the day. They didn't want to stay at work another hour and a half and do yoga. And, and so that's what we run into. So what we need to do is really systemic changes in the way that our organizations are helping people. And that comes in in higher wages and more benefits, training. These are the kind of things that are going to make a difference in people's lives. So, you know, as you were talking about that, Patricia, I was thinking about a book that I read years ago and a story that I heard Ariana Huffington from Huffington Post Mm -hmm. um, talk about her own personal story. And she worked tirelessly to make this huge everything that she did. I don't even know how to explain uh, everything that she did. But she also collapsed. And they thought it was a tumor, is my understanding. And she ended up in the hospital. And after that, she realized that, toward the end of the story, she realized that she needed to develop a company that focused on wellness, but also included all the things you just mentioned, but also flexible work schedules. People had breaks. Mm -hmm. And it was a family-oriented kind of uh, environment and she, I think, started Thrive Global and then does presentations on that as well. So I remember being really impressed by what she talked about with her own personal story and how then, then she turned it around for all of her employees. I, I, you know, that, that story is ringing a bell. I, I think I have read uh, about her and what she did. And boy, she was spot on. One of the other things that some companies are doing, and I, it's so very important, is no email, no company emails after five o'clock on Friday, and not before eight o'clock on Monday morning. Oh, that would be and, tough. And, and that releases some people from feeling like they need to do that. And if someone does email you, unless it's an emergency, of course, there's always room for that. But uh, unless it's you know an emergency, you just don't answer because that's not the company policy. So what happens when managers are focused on productivity? <laughs> that, well, you know, that's one of my core pieces of advice. We've got to get leadership and managers. If if you do well by your people and you have their backs and you help them get ahead and you help them succeed, they will do more work for you than if you, mm-hmm. you know, do the other. You know, be, beating what is it? Beatings will continue until morale improves. Mm-hmm. That does that doesn't work. That yes. doesn't work. Yes. And there's actually uh, countries, and I have it in, in the, the veterinary book, where I think it was Sweden who cut their work days to four days a week just to see what would happen. And they cut their days shorter, and there was more, the productivity was higher than it's ever been. People were happier. Hmm. They surveyed the people. They said, I got to spend more time with my family. I got to ride my bike more often. I got to cook good meals for myself and my family. And they would just do that. Mm-hmm. The American ethic, unfortunately, is, you know, long hours, hard work, get ahead. It isn't working. It isn't working. We're a very sick society on so many levels. So do you think that COVID has changed things for us, it kind of forced us to stop and reset? I hope so. Uh, I just read a wonderful quote by Eckhart Tolle. He said, the, the new is already here. The mm. old is just dying loudly. Oh, I love that. I 
love that expression because the old is going away. It isn't working. Driving people into the ground and not helping people and giving them what they deserve. And I mean, like healthcare is not working. Everyone will do better if we all do better by each other. So I, I love that. And what also comes to mind is right when COVID hit, I was worried about my clients who have a lot of issues with anxiety and depression. Yes. And they actually told me, Allison, I feel a little guilty because I feel like I'm doing okay through all of this. I'm still struggling with the things we worked on before. But the people that I got in the door that were wanting services at that time were people that had not been receiving services for anxiety, but they were so busy in the workplace and all of a sudden their work ended, just at least temporarily, and they weren't used to not being busy. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know what to do. And they focused on TV all the time. And you know what that'll do if you uh, focus on social media and TV too much. So they didn't know how to be still. And that was (laughs) really a problem for a lot of people. Well, these these are these coping skills, you know, meditation, mindfulness. They're not easy. None of this is easy. Letting go. It, it people, you know, I know sometimes I can see in my audiences, they're like, oh, God, that's so easy. Yeah, I'll, I'll eat better. Try to eat better when you're under stress. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my sister is in the guidance department at, at a high school in Palo Alto, and the stress is unbelievable. And they just decided to, to go off, you know, offline, online. They're not going to class, which she was very happy because mm-hmm. she just felt that was the right answer for high schoolers, especially. And she wrote me and she said, I need medicinal chocolate, and I don't have any in my house. <laughs> you know, we all have our crutches, and it's okay. Yeah, uh, that's that's another thing that I talk about it in my slideshow. I have a picture of Charlie Brown, and he's in bed with Snoopy, and he says to Snoopy, "I can't go out there today, Snoopy. It's too peopley out there." <laughs> I love that. And isn't that cute? I, yes. You know, and it's okay. Whatever you're feeling, if you're anxious, if you're lonely, if you're happy because you're home with some spare time. It doesn't matter what it is. It's okay. It's personalized to you. And that's what you need to to look at in caregiving and in compassion fatigue and stress and anxiety. What works for you and do more of it? Because by being healthy, it will make the people around us healthier. So there's something that Dr. Brittany Brown said that was... Love her. Love her. Yeah. When you numb the bad, you also numb the good. Yes. And so if people are using alcohol excessively, they're not going to feel great for that much longer either. Uh, the same goes with eating too much food as well. So mm-hmm. I think yeah, a lot and we of... know this, but changing it is so difficult. Our brains are you know, mm-hmm. wired mm-hmm. and changing habits is really rough, but it's imperative. And I, and, and I think this is teaching us, this situation is teaching all of us uh, we're becoming more self-aware. It's like, hmm, I didn't realize I did that, or mm-hmm. I do too much of that. I have to stop doing it. Or I, I hope it's all sustainable. Uh, that's all you know. I can hope for is that the, the lessons being learned are good lessons, and people will move in that direction. Well, it's kind of like when you meditate for a period of time and you feel that sense of peace. I always want to capture that again. So that's what mm-hmm. makes that's what drives me back to do a certain behavior is when it feels good enough for me to continue to look for that again and yeah. repeat it. You know where where I found that, and this has just about been about a year into this practice, is deep breathing. 
Ah. I used to think, oh, I used to think, oh, come on, what can that possibly do? <laughs> and then I started reading about, you know, physiologically and psych- psychologically and all of that, what deep breathing does for our body and our brains. And I do it all the time. I'm surprised I don't faint. but it calms me down it puts things in perspective and it allows me clarity of thought Mm -hmm. and i always say it's cheap it's easy just do it just do it and it's that same feeling like i don't want to do it i don't want to breathe deeply and then i go yeah but remember how good that felt when you did it and then i go yeah and then i do it and i get that same wonderful result yeah and I don't know that people know how to do that correctly. They think, well, I'm breathing anyway, right? So I'm just going to breathe a little bit deeper. <laughs> yeah, and so what well, does that mean? All kinds of, and, and the good thing with the Internet, you can look it up. You know, there's mm-hmm. the, the one, what is it, the 656 or something? Where 478 you, for Dr. It's yeah, Dr. Andrew Weil. Yeah, and, and it works. It does. I know for a fact. We'll put Dr. Andrew Weil's 478 breath uh, a link to that in the show notes because I give that to clients all the time and I think Excellent. that's a good one. So you know, you know that it works. Yes, I and do. It, like I said, more than anything, it calms you down. I did it quite a bit when we first got on the uh, on the call because I'm, you know, my mind was reeling about these fires and I just said, no, this is where you are right now. You need to breathe deeply and do the best you can because this will also help people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's helped me tremendously. And you're giving such wonderful advice if somebody is, you know, having symptoms of compassion fatigue or even has a question about it, what is your suggestion? It depends. I mean, I, I always tell, you know, participants, if indeed it's disrupting your life to the point where you don't have a high quality of life, you, you probably need professional help. Just make sure that the person you go to understands what this is. Two weeks in Hawaii is a great thing but it's not going to take care of it. You're going to come back and you're going to fall right into it again Mm -hmm. because this needs to be taken care of. It needs to be resolved. If there's past traumas that have not been resolved, they're they're living within us and we have to expel them. And sometimes it's very painful, but what I try to explain is, is keeping all of that trauma in is more work than letting it out, having a good cry and moving on. So you might need professional help to bring you on that path. But other than that, you know, someone that's suffering from the symptoms of compassion fatigue, figure out ways, self-care, have a self-care plan. Oftentimes people say, oh, I don't have time to do that. And I say, you need to make time. You need to make time for yourself. I have a cute story uh, about a veterinarian. Um, Mm -hmm. I do trainings here on the island for the animal protection services. And we have a couple of veterinarians, and one of them is uh, actually my son's dog's vet. And she's just up in the air. She came to the meeting late. She hadn't eaten dinner, and she's just all over the place, you know. So she sits down, and she says, I don't know what I'm going to do. She said, between my family and my practice, and, you know, there's just too much to do. And I said, well, you need to make some time for yourself. What would you do? And she said, oh, if I had time for myself, I'd ride my horse. She said, I don't ride my horse anymore. Hmm. And that was my joy of my life. And I said, well, what can you do about that? She said, I can't do anything. I don't have any time. My day is full. My nights are full. My mornings are full. And I said, well, somehow you have to make time. What could you do? Could you get up an hour earlier? And she said, oh, I already get up so early. And I said, could you get up an hour earlier? She said, yeah, I guess I could. 
and a week, you know, veterinarians are so brilliant. They're such mm-hmm. intelligent people. So the next week she comes in and she's on time. I mean, this is one of the biggest changes I've ever seen in a person. And she sits down and she has a big smile on her face. And I said, well, what, what do you have to report? And she said, I got up an hour earlier and I've been riding my horse every single morning. And she said, it has changed my life. Awesome. I mean, it sounds simple, but she had to work really hard to do it. And then the next week she came in and she was so excited. She had her pictures and she said, the sun rises on this island are spectacular. She said, now I'm on my horse taking pictures. pictures. <laughs> one thing, you know, connecting the dots, one thing leads to the other. And um, I, I, I had a copy. I got author's copies of my books and I, Derek had to take uh, Sky, his border collie, to the, to the vet. And I said, oh, give, give her this. Give her a copy of the book. And so uh, Derek went in and he gave her the copy of the book and she just burst into tears. And she said, thank you so much. There's that thank you again. Mm-hmm. You know, tell your mother, thank you so much, how much I appreciate this. She changed my life. And that's why I continue to do this work. Every once in a while, a story like that comes to the surface. And it's like, yeah, she was smart enough to know she had to do the work. She did it and it changed her life. And that's what makes it all so important and so valuable. And the work that you do, Patricia Smith, is so valuable to so many people. Oh, that's a beautiful story. It is. I love it. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, and I think that thanking our healthcare professionals is just, mm-hmm. you can't do it enough. Can't do it enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the grocery workers. And, I mean, yes. we, order, we have a, a market here on the island, and they've all been working just unbelievably hard. And they have, because, you know, of, of my, you know, our situation, my daughter lives with me, and we do uh, online ordering. Mm-hmm. And they bring it right out to the car. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's like, thank you. They bring it right out to your trunk and put it in there. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, thank you. You know, you're at risk, and yet you're doing this for us. Mm-hmm. And the fairies are bringing food, you know. Um, that's the other thing. You know, we're very isolated here. And if the fairies ever stop, we're in trouble. And those people are still coming on with their big trucks and bringing us food. And it's, it's an amazing thing to watch. So, Patricia, is... You've given us so much valuable information. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Oh, gosh, I think we could talk for another three hours, couldn't we? Uh, We're on the same wavelength, and it's so wonderful talking to people who get it. I I would like to say one thing. The time to start our recovery is now. Uh, Mm -hmm. The book I'm working on right now, I'm so excited about it. I, I, I just Every day I sit and write and write and write and write, and it's about pandemic, post-pandemic recovery and how we need Mm. to start doing these things for ourselves now because it looks like this is going to be going on for a while. And if we wait and we say, oh, I'll deal with that later, I'll eat better later, I'll get more rest later, we're going to be in more trouble than we are now. Mm -hmm. So post-pandemic trauma recovery needs to start now. And there's so much written about it. And there's so much written about post-traumatic stress growth. We all have the ability to grow through this. And it's all online. I mean, there's, you just Google this stuff. It's everywhere. And there's some really good people who have written some really important information on this. And so that's what I'm doing now. I'm trying to get this book ready to get out there. I'm excited so that, to get uh, another book. Well, it's going to be a while. <laughs> um, you know, probably another couple of months at least. But that's okay. Um, I hope it will make a difference. And like I said, every time I do do a talk and, or a webinar, I say, start now. Don't put it off. 
I know it's hard. You know, it's hard to find time, those of you who have kids and are homeschooling and working and trying to feed your family and going to work every day. But find that time to nurture yourself because you'll come out of this better uh, if you start now. Find the time to nurture yourself, but also um, I'm finding myself doing things that I didn't normally have time to do or didn't make time to do. I'm taking online piano lessons after a number of years, and I'm making recipes that I haven't made before and and trying. You know, I've got a mortar and pestle, and I'm like uh, doing herbs, and I've got like a little garden in the back and doing all these things that are just I haven't done in many, many years. So I'm, I'm telling people, and I'm also trying to preach, practice what I preach by trying to figure out what I'm going to take post-pandemic, you know, into my post-pandemic lifestyle, because I think that's okay. important. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I wasn't going to say this, but the crux of this book is how do we do that? How do we start nurturing ourselves? It's through the healing arts. Oh, it's the gardening, it. it's the cooking, it's the um, music, it's the reading and writing, it's the art. Oh my and, gosh. And, and call, calling these legendary behaviors that are, that are part of our legacy as humans, calling on them now to fill us up and heal us and help us recover. So that's the crux of the that book. That is so exciting to me. I actually went to... Uh, presentation on trauma and expressive arts and how wow. we can help people heal their trauma through expressive arts, music, mm-hmm. writing, dance, anything yeah. besides and, talking. And it, can be, it can be special to you. It can be authentic. It is so important. Authenticity is so important. You know, doing what other people do doesn't work for us. And we live in a society where, you know, the ad agencies and you know, they're all telling us, you know, everything that we should be doing, what car to drive, what, you know, the whole thing. We have to just put all that aside, find it interesting, but find the true north. What is our true authentic self? I mean, I would love to be an artist. I'm not an artist. I mean, I'm a writer, but I'm not an artist. Mm-hmm. And I draw stick people. But, you know, sometimes <laughs> I just take a piece of paper and I draw stick people. And uh-huh. I get a lot out of it. I don't have to be a Vincent Van Gogh to get the healing properties of art. It can be whatever I want it to be. So that's basically my, my new area I'm moving into, and I, I believe it 100%. I love it. I can't wait to get that book as well, Patricia. And I, do you think you're, there's going to be another TED Talk in the future for you? No, never. When I, when I got about a month after the TED Talk, I got a call from someone who does TED Talks down in Portland. <laughs> And she said, we'd like you to come and do one down here, will you? And I said, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for me. I mean, I have no problem getting up in front of 2,000 people and doing a keynote. I have no problem with that. But that TED Talk really unnerved me. <laughs> and it was because it wasn't specific. Mm. I, I didn't feel like I was offering something that would really, really help mm-hmm. those people because I didn't know who they were and what their mission in life was. And that colored it for me. So I, I, I don't think I'll ever do another one. No, I'll put it in words, okay. on pages, in books. Okay. Well, <laughs> I loved your TED Talk, so it, it, you know, touched something in me. So, you know, I thought it was awesome. Oh, thank you. So, Patricia, is if there's not anything else, I encourage the, the audience to buy your books. Um, we're going to put everything in the show notes, so you'll have a link also to the deep breathing, we'll uh, put a plug in yeah, uh, for do, Dr. Andrew do. Weil. 
<laughs> as well That's as uh, Charles Figley, and I know he's very important as well. Yes, and Dr. Beth Hedmall's dam and her self-test, uh, she gives everyone permission to use that. So, um, you know, go ahead and, and put that in there because that's, you know, I still take it every six months or, you know, 12 months I take it because uh, compassion fatigue will sneak in. One time I was talking to Dr. Figley and I said, I'm so proud of myself. I've, I've really, really done a lot of healing work and I feel like I'm there. And I said, I think I've, I've overcome my compassion fatigue. And he said, oh, I hate to tell you, it's always there. Mm. And it has to do with those deep neural pathways. Mm-hmm. You know, my first impulse is I want to help. I want to do something, you know, and, and it's there and it will always be there. And sometimes I have mm-hmm. to override it with mm-hmm. with my own self-care. Yeah. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for sharing all oh. of your knowledge with us. I've learned thank so much from you. Thank you for inviting me and, and having me on your show. And you're doing wonderful things. Thank you so much. And thank you to our wonderful animal people. They're they're closest to my heart. Yes. When I speak to animal groups, I say you are closest to my heart because, yeah, caring for an animal to me is as good as it gets. Well, thank you, Patricia. I appreciate you. Okay. Take care. And that is compassion fatigue. Take a minute here as we draw to the end of this episode. Are you taking on the responsibility and perspective of those around you consistently? Are you succumbing to compassion fatigue? Again, it creeps up on you and can instantly change the hue of your vision, no matter who you are. Patricia's content, both existing and what's to come, continues to make a difference. Just like this podcast episode, I urge you to stop for a minute, breathe, and see how you too can venture into a healthier arena of self-care. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.